Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data science, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lachlan, and with me today is Olivia Gamblin. Olivia has the exciting job title of being an AI ethicist and is the founder and CEO of Ethical Intelligence Associates. As we will hear, she has a background across many organizations, including Cape Corporation, Save the Children, Springer Nature, and being an advisory board member of several influential AI and ethics groups. We'll also explore her journey from an MSc in philosophy of all things, to such critical roles that she plays today in influencing data and AI ethics. So welcome, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me today, Paul. It's great to have you as a guest. I was introduced to you by our mutual friend, Faraz, who appeared on an earlier episode. And I must say, I jumped to the charts, not just because you're so personable, which you are, but because I hear so many organizations, data science leaders particularly, wrestling with ethics these days. It's like it's a a new challenge and a totally different discipline for people that suddenly come on the theme and become quite uh, quite critical. So it, it sounds like you're the right voice at the right time for our podcast, Illumini. Well, I am very glad to hear that, and I'm excited to share more insight about, I guess, this this new skill set coming onto the scene, as you're saying. Yeah, great stuff. All right, well, let's crack on with my first question. You've probably heard my style with previous guests. We'd like to start by painting a bit of a background story for our listeners, letting them know, if you like, the experience you come from in, in what you share. So... Could you tell us a bit about your background, Olivia, and how you got into the world of data and AI ethics? Absolutely. And it is definitely a bit of a story. I always laugh when people ask me where I'm from because it tends to entail a longer story than uh, anyone expects the answer to be. So I will- <laughs> I'll settle keep... down with a cuppa and, and prepare myself. <laughs> exactly. So, so settle in. Um, so I was born and raised in Redwood City. It's right outside San Francisco. Um, And it's really at the heart of the Silicon Valley. So in the middle of tech, I grew up speaking techie, if you want to call it that. (laughs) I saw tech at its best. I saw tech at its worst. I really grew up ingrained in that culture. Mm. And out of, I would say, an act of rebellion, I went and studied philosophy (laughs) for an undergrad. Good for you. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted to try something a little bit different. I was still enamored with tech. It's a fascinating industry and it really sucks you in, especially in that area. Mm. Um, But I wanted to try something different and I wanted to reach out beyond just the, what I'd been accustomed to growing up around. And Mm. I loved the topic of ethics and morality. However, briefly it was touched on in my high school classes, but I I always found them fascinating. Mm. So 
when it came time to do my undergrad, I, well, fun fact, actually started as a physics major, um, quickly realized that the part of physics that I found fascinating was the theoretical. And that actually all looped back into philosophy. And that's where I rediscovered that love of ethics, morality, and, and theory, mm. um, which led me to actually majoring in, in philosophy itself. It was a great time. I studied at Baylor University out in Texas. So again, completely different from where I had been growing up. Yeah. And <laughs> when I finished, I took some time um, basically working in digital strategy and communications. I'd mm -hmm. finished the undergrad in philosophy. I loved it, but I wanted to do something practical. And I, so I, I promised myself one day I'll return to philosophy. But as soon as I figure out what to practically do with it, besides law and being a professor, I, those, those two professions didn't quite appeal to me then. Mm -hmm. And so I worked for, worked for quite some time. It was, I would say, my, my early on career um, in digital strategy and communications. And I primarily focused on startups or companies that service startups. Um, one of those companies was actually a small consulting firm in Brussels, Belgium. Right. Um, and that's how I really started to get my foot deeper into uh, the conversation around data ethics. So for that consulting firm, I was a researcher in GDPR and data privacy, mm. attending all of these meetings and conferences and so on. And I was at a conference and heard a woman on stage saying, well, the next big topics in data, she had this big long list, but the one that she was focusing on was data ethics. She's like, this is the next big topic. Mm. And I had all the light bulbs going off in my brain at that point, because there I am, <laughs> it really, it does sound cheesy to say, but, but That's it was great. that kind of moment. Exactly. Uh, but looking back, it, it was, oh my goodness, here's this fascination with tech. Here's an industry that I am already ingrained into. And I guess in, in all intents and purposes, enamored with, but here's also my love and fascination of, of ethics coming into play. And they actually meet these, these go together. So from that moment, and I, I swear, I left that conference and I went home and I pulled up a university search for masters in ethics and data and artificial intelligence. I, I expanded out of just data and also looked at artificial intelligence mm -hmm. as since those are closely entwined and ended up at the University of Edinburgh doing a, a master's in AI ethics. And during that time at, at Edinburgh, um, I came to realize that I had <laughs> basically taken uh, headfirst, Dovenin head, headfirst into a field that didn't necessarily have a clear career path. Yes, which, early days, early days, yeah. Yes, I am very glad I didn't Google um, in the very beginning what the career path for an AI ethicist was, because I think it might have, it wouldn't have deterred me, but it would have made it a little more nerve wracking to take that leap of faith. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, instead, I just went in blind and said, I'm, I'm, this is what I was meant to do. This is what I want to do. Here's what here, I'm going to go do it. Um, but as I was looking for what the next steps in my career would be after that master's, I came to realize, well, there was this gap between industry and academia. You had all of these amazing academics with, with fantastic research happening in ethics and, and data and, and AI and all these questions in industry and no one speaking between the two. Mm. So I found this, basically that this missed opportunity, that these missed ships in a night, as you want to say, yeah. and essentially started ethical intelligence, my, my company, um, 
to help solve that gap, to start bringing the research and the resources that were being developed in AI and data ethics to industry and practical in practical solutions. Um, and so then that was, uh, well, the company, we're now three years old. So we passed that critical mark in, well in a startup's journey. Thank you. It's a big, big birthday celebration. Um, and it's been just an absolute amazing journey these past three years to see both the industry, the company, and myself uh, develop in this, this new, essentially, basically new industry. Like I was saying, it's yeah. a new industry even. It does sound an exciting journey. Thank you for for sharing that with us, Olivia. It's I, I love it when someone's passions and personality are kind of revealed, if you like, or fulfilled in 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 the route that they take, and it helps enrich what is available in the industry and how the industry moves forward. It's it's very human and holistic. It's it's great. Thank you for for sharing all of that with us. Let me kind of pick up on things that. I found interesting listening to that. I'll, I'll go actually right back to the start, the beginning. Your, your Silicon Valley influenced childhood sounds interesting. Not not true of everyone who lives in Brussels, I'm sure. Um, do you look back on that time when you're probably like, I imagine in the stereotype of everyone there, uh, aspiring to be a startup founder or have the, the next kind of tech break? So do you think that was a good start in life for where you've ended up? Or do you sometimes wish you'd had a different kind of start in life than growing up in the in the region of tech as almost a religion, I suppose I'd put it. That is a fantastic question in the sense that it will be very revealing in terms of my answer. Um, it's a love-hate relationship with that area oh. and growing growing up in the Silicon Valley. I, I mean, as you were saying, when you grow up there, parents have the typical, I want my, my daughter to be a lawyer, I want my daughter to be a doctor. I want my daughter to be a startup founder. It's it's one yeah. of the big careers, basically. Mm. And in one way, that's very inspiring. I think I, I I know I attribute a lot of my drive and my ambition to actually growing up in that area where mm. it was just a natural assumption of mine. I, I had made the decision probably when I was about 10 that I would be a startup founder someday. So when the time and place came for it to actually happen, it wasn't a hard decision for me. It was a, oh, here's here's the right idea. I was waiting for this. Okay, time to do yeah. this. Yeah. And so I've got that love. I've got that love and appreciation because it has given me a certain pace of work style. It's given me uh, this kind of unquenchable uh, ambition at times. Um, but also that that drive to take an idea from conception and see it through. Mm. And of course, I, I'm not going to lie. It's a great network that you grow up around out there. And, yeah, sure. and it's a great area. And there's a, there's a certain energy out in San Francisco that is very inspiring to be in when you are a founder, because when you're, when you're there surrounded by other founders, you're, you're no longer seen as an outsider um, or as someone taking a risky career path. It's more of, cool, you, you, you took the leap and you had an idea and, and you're going for it. That's great. It's, it's supported. So that's, that's the good side, that the hate side, uh, it's again, coming back towards that ambition, um, relentless ambition almost. It's, it's a constant grind. It's, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm working, say a balanced work week where I'm not hitting 80 hours a week, I'm sitting there going, what happened? Why didn't I work more? Or wow. um, what's, what's holding me back? And so it's, 
this kind of ingrained voice that we all get in our heads. And, and this is true. I've talked with many of my friends and other, other founders from, from the Silicon Valley mm. um, that grew, out, grew up or had a significant influence in their life path. Uh, we get this kind of ingrained voice in our heads of never enough, you got to do more, never enough, got to mm. do more. Mm-hmm. What's the next step? And so with that, the hate side comes in of, I have a hard time uh, stopping and looking back and going, I've actually come pretty far or yeah. say, I, I've, I've, you know, signed a big client that, you know, three years ago would have been impossible. And now it's just like, okay. And, and I want to get the, the next biggest one that this isn't enough. So the hate side comes from that unquenchable ambition, that unquenchable drive where it's very, very hard to slow down. And so uh, that's why I don't live full time actually in San Francisco. It, it keeps me balanced to be outside of that where I, where I can actually find some slower pace. Mm. Uh, but it is, it, it's, it's a voice that I've never been able to get rid of. And I, and I don't think I'll ever be able to. Thank you. Thank you. It's, I'm sure there'll be people who relate to that, even if it's not their geographical place of origin, if you like. Funnily enough, I was going to ask you if the move to Brussels helped um, get you out of that culture that kind of validated you in a you in a critic or, or that voice. Are, are there any other things that have helped you moderate that, Olivia? Because I guess a lot of mm. leaders, particularly drivers as, as personality types or the kind of people who tend to go on and found organizations, also struggle with this unquenchable drive inside them and moderating to give sufficient attention to well-being, managing to pause and celebrate the things you've kind of mentioned. What else has helped you as well as get the hell out of Dodge and live in Brussels? Well, get, definitely getting the hell out of Dodge helps a lot. <laughs> I, it, does, uh, it does a lot for me. Mm. Um, I would say also my friends. Mm. I've mm. got a very close circle of friends that, Good. I mean, are, are, we don't bond over work, which I think is very different from typical friendships that you'll find, especially in tech where you bond over work. Yeah. All of my friends I've met outside of work doing either through house shares or random meetups or different activities. And so my work with my friends is not my defining factor. It's Mm -hmm. not what I use to introduce myself with. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I I think that really helps me when I'm not leading with the introduction of I am a founder, I am an AI ethicist, and instead leading with um, I'm an expat or I uh, love to travel or I'm a rock climber. Um, That for me, it helps put me in a different frame of mind where I can turn off the, like, I I need to do more, I need to do more. And instead puts me into the frame of mind of I have done enough and I have other interesting things that I like to do and it's okay to rest. And I surround myself with people that keep their personal lives also very interesting and, and fulfilling um, that I can, I can participate in or, or join in on. Um, so I, I think I owe a lot of that balance and that ability to turn off to the people that I've been able to surround myself with. That's a great answer. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, Olivia. And I will, I will now officially switch off my inner coach who is so tempted to, <laughs> to, to go deeper there. Um, the, um, the, the other thing I wanted to, to pick up on was 
you, you had that background in digital strategy and marketing, which you seem mm. to pick up remarkably quickly, but I'm, I'm learning that about you. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it didn't sound like you had much of a background in data and analytics from the start. So I was wondering how you, you suddenly land this role to do GDPR research and you're heading off to what people may not think of the world's most fascinating conferences, but you're certainly kind of working in that area. How did you get your head up to speed with what you needed to know about data and analytics when that hadn't been the kind of job you did before? So one of the, okay, one of the great things, again, one of the love parts of the Silicon Valley <laughs> is I did a lot of internships uh, throughout oh. college and I was the kind of intern that just wanted to learn and try a bunch of different things. Um, and one of my first internships was with a company called Cake Corporation and Cake uh, supplied restaurant uh, point of sale systems. Mm. And I finished the first couple of projects that I was brought on to do. Uh, it was supposed to take me three months, it took me three weeks. And so they passed me around to a couple different departments uh, <laughs> to try and, well, I mean, find things for me to do, but also there they were, they were plenty to do. And so I ended up in different departments um, Sometimes I was helping convert data sets. Sometimes I was looking at sales and operations um, and onboarding of new software. Uh, other times I was looking at their social media or working uh, with their customer service lines. But through mm -hmm. that experience, I had a lot of chances to actually um, look into and experience uh, different aspects of data and analytics through the different departments because each department has their own tool sets. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And so that gave me a, a great grounding, but then also on top of that, being in the Silicon Valley, part of my high school classes focused on data analytics and, and understanding how it works. Um, and so I, I learned a lot actually just by naturally being where I was. And like you said, I am a, I am a fast learner and I pick things up quite quickly. But I think one of the biggest things for me that was a, a huge game changer was actually during my master's. Um, so when I went in to do the, the master's degree in, in, in ethics, I was actually um, starting a social club, a society called the Beneficial AI Society. And okay. me and, and the other, I guess you would call it, I can't remember if you call us board members or, or society members or the group of five of us that ran the society, whatever you want to call <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah. Uh, we decided that we wanted to write these handbooks. And I took, I took lead on the ethics one. My friend took the lead on the machine learning handbook and I was writing the handbook ethics for computer programmers. And my friend was writing ML for philosophers. Right. And the process of sitting down and working together of actually having to figure out how do I communicate ethics in a way to computer programmers really gave me this in-depth understanding of how to communicate this kind of gray matter, this gray zone to people that think of very black and white yeah. and vice yeah. versa. When I was working with my friend who was writing the, the ML handbook, he, there were so many times where I had to sit down and go, okay, I see what you're trying to say here, but please explain this to me because this is not the kind of language that someone from the humanities background is going to understand, or uh, I'm missing this concept. And so it was like this, this boot camp of, what in the world is machine learning down to its very fundamentals. Mm -hmm. um, and so by having those, those fundamentals complement the, the fundamentals I'd learned um, along the way on data analytics is by having, I guess you could say this philosopher in me, 
<laughs> if I can understand the theory and the fundamentals of something, I can quite easily apply it because it's it's easy for me to extrapolate out of that. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a longer answer than I'm sure you're expecting as well on that one. But it's more or less how, how I've picked up these skills uh, in a very non-traditional way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I get the, I get the, uh, the approach, um, Olivia. Thank you. It, it's funny. It, it makes me think how important, and I've seen this over the years with all flavors of data analytics and data science teams, how important the translator roles are. And, and I guess you're an example that you can come actually from very outside of that technical background. But if you can quickly learn enough and have the ability to translate well, you can add tremendous value, even if you don't seem to have all the technical background that people might, might assume is necessary. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You need that kind of fresh perspective, if you want to call it. Yes. Yes, yes, benefit of that, absolutely. <laughs> I'm kind of conscious of the next question I'm going to ask you. That there's, there could be an implied agenda in the fact that I'm sitting here in the UK talking to you and you're sitting in Brussels and I'm about to raise the subject of GDPR. So let me first caveat, <laughs> I'm not going to mention Brexit again. So <laughs> I, I was actually intrigued by the fact that you're, um, you described your light bulb moment, which was lovely. It's kind of coming after you'd um, started this work on GDPR research. So I'm thinking, okay, so just starting on GDPR research didn't immediately make a light bulb go off about the potential role of data or AI ethics. Do you think that's because GDPR doesn't really relate to ethics? It doesn't actually move that forward? Or does it get in the way? Is it a positive barrier to the fullness of an ethical approach to use of data and AI. What, what's your views on that, Olivia? There are many opinions I can give on the GDPR, but I will, <laughs> I will keep it concise. Okay. And essentially the GDPR is, is seen as the first of many regulations that were attempting to start to regulate tech and are now being grouped in, under this umbrella of responsible AI, AI ethics, uh, trustworthy technology, you'll hear a lot of these terms, they're right. really all referring to the same um, developing industry and, and practice of, of technology development. Okay. Um, the GDPR itself, when it was created, was really just focused on privacy and what the mm. heck was happening with, with people's data. Yeah. So you have the digital economy in the EU, and a lot of the questions were, well, who owns the data? Where is the profit coming from? There were companies storing data in one country, but paying taxes in another and profiting in a whole nother. And so the GDPR was starting to look at not necessarily how that digital economy was going to function, but how privacy was functioning in that digital economy. So when you are collecting data and information about people, what are the standards that you have to collect that to? So it's a very, very legal document. It's focused on, yeah. on the nitty gritty details and hey, there's some shortfallings in it and I can go into that, but I'll, I'll keep it uh, more focused on, on your question here. So privacy itself is a tool, it's a mechanism. It does actually fall under what is the umbrella term of ethics. Um, it is seen as a value. The interesting thing about privacy is it is, it functions a little bit different than our usual values. So when it comes to say the value of honesty or trust, I'm not going to trade my trust for something in return. I'm not going to trade um, my honesty for something in return. I will trade my privacy though. Mm. 
what I mean by this is I will give you access to, uh, say, my health information mm-hmm. in exchange for better care and, ser- and better health care and services. So I am trading you something that is mine in return for a benefit. And yeah. the importance of privacy is privacy is in violation when the entity that I'm trading with has more information on me than I am receiving benefit in return. So they are collecting, uh, I'm going to stick with the health health example here. They're collecting more health information on me than either I know either, or I am aware of, or I am comfortable with. That's all violations of privacy. And I should be receiving some type of benefit in return. That's not always the case. Mm-hmm. That exchange, whether what type of privacy, how much information I'm willing to give and what I should have in return, that exchange, that trade-off, that is essentially an ethics question. We're looking at that of how much information can you take from your users? What resources, what, what benefits should you be giving back to your users? Um, what does that exchange look like in a way that your users feel that they are not being uh, exploited or, um, yeah, essentially used? Mm-hmm. The GDPR mm-hmm. really only covers what is legally capable in that instance. So yeah. you can take all the information you want under the GDPR as long as it you know abides by the GDPR. Uh, a lot gets classified under legitimate interest. Yeah. Um, you'd be yeah. very surprised what's legitimately interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but that is legally what you're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. So you could legally be allowed to collect my gender, my age, my blood pressure, and under the law, totally fine. But mm-hmm. me as an individual, I may not want you to have my, say, gender. Mm-hmm. And that is where the ethics starts to become part of a question and where, it be, where that starts to differ from the GDPR is I'm not comfortable sharing my gender. Again, this is an example, but I'm not comfortable sharing my gender. Legally, you can have that information, but ethically, there are questions about that of what are you actually using that information for? Mm-hmm. Um, so to sum it all up, the GDPR is a foundation it's a foundation regulation that started to rein in what was essentially the wild west in terms <laughs> of privacy and data sharing practices. Yeah, yeah. It is not, if you are GDPR compliant, congratulations. Uh, it does not mean you are ethically aligned with your users. It yeah. means that you're legally safe. And that's, that's yeah. really the extent of it. That makes good sense. Nice summary, Olivia, I think it's a... Uh... A nice metaphor of kind of base camp on a, on a on a journey up a mountain. It kind of kind of makes sense. Yes, exactly. I, I hear you with regard to your previous opportunity to do this um, joint development of the ML handbook um, with with someone with a background in ML, and you kind of brought the ethical understanding and you kind of co-created. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm still impressed with you managing to make the transition to go beyond data ethics, as we kind of discussed in there in the conversation about GDPR to AI ethics with all the added complexity of not just the theory, but what's actually practically possible. I I remember reading a book called Rebooting AI. I I think I reviewed it on the blog as well. It can be so overhyped by so many people. They don't realize what's actually practically possible and the the limitations and implications of the limitations, et cetera. How on earth do you keep yourself 
sufficiently up to date with the reality of how AI is being used, and in many ways how it touches all our lives, to take an ethical approach on that. Yeah. So the cool thing about my job is I do have to stay very up to date on technological developments, mm -hmm. on the latest trends in AI. Um, so you would think normally in an industry, I'm ingrained only in that industry. I'd, I'm only ingrained in, in responsible tech and ethics and frameworks. Uh, yeah. No, I actually function quite often in the tech bubble. <laughs> you can say the wider tech right. bubble. Okay. Um, I attend AI conferences. I am a reviewer for Springer on their AI and ethics journal. So I'm constantly reading new ah, publications right. in AI. Um, yeah. The whole leap from data to, to AI was actually quite a natural progression for me because you can't have, have AI without data. And yes. so data is again, the great, a great foundation and AI is just a, a more complex um, problem on top of that. And, or, or I wouldn't say problem, but tool on top of that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's taking the data to the next level and expanding beyond that. Um, but really in terms of staying up to date, it's a lot of reading articles. I'm constantly in conversation. Uh, I've got different, I guess you call, could call them touch points in industry, but, but different people that I catch up with on either weekly, monthly basis. And it's, Hey, what's going on in your industry? Um, what's the new trends? And yeah, it's, it's definitely, <laughs> a lot to stay on top of. Mm, um, mm. I remember actually, I was out to drinks, um, I wanna say about two months ago. And Sounds I- Sounds good Olivia, go on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was, hey, I was actually in London too. So this took place in the UK. Um, and I was out, out to drinks actually with uh, Maria Sante and Kate O'Neill. And they're, they're two um, leading, basically thought leaders in all intents and purposes and responsible tech. Uh, and the three of us were we're sitting we're, we're, we're talking shit we're talking about uh, the, the new the new regulations we're talking about yeah, influence yeah, we're coming yeah. out of the pandemic and we're all excited and we're 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 talking about responsible tech and and AI ethics um, and I had a friend join us that was comes from a completely different industry mm. and she was sitting there listening to to the three of us talk about about our work and afterwards I remember her saying she's like that was fascinating because you guys literally you, you went everywhere from geopolitics mm. to mm -hmm. to code to new data trends to frameworks to uh these like existential questions around ethics and she's like you yeah. did that so seamlessly and that was my first time that I clued in and went well yeah it's just that's part of the conversation it's it's what mm. we all stay on top mm. of and and what we have to mm -hmm. um so for me it's a fascinating industry to be a part of because I have to pay attention to all of these things and make sure that I'm on top of it and, and understand how they all work together because they do have so much influence on on each other they're they're not separate components they're all part of the same picture yes 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 no I see that you do paint a compelling vision of of the kind of line of work that you're in if, if people have got their brains get their, their head around it I I'm loving this emerging sort of aspect of how polymath is how many different disciplines and different fields of interest kind of converge and and are, are relevant to the conversation I, I remember you mentioning before when we chatted that early on when sort of setting up or thinking of setting up your business you you just had a free discussion club over mm -hmm. over drinks sort of there in Brussels and it sounded like quite a wide range of people attended that with regard to the kind of backgrounds so have, have I got that right yes so I work with people from all shapes and sizes of backgrounds. <laughs> and it, 
I absolutely love it. Mm. Um, one of the cool things about ethical intelligence is we, we have a network of verified professionals and responsible tech. And I say verified professionals and not verified ethicists because that network, it's about 75 people now, come from backgrounds from machine learning to programming to philosophy to ethics to policymaking to uh, we, we have healthcare practitioners, we have oh, right. a blockchain enthusiasts and yeah. you name it, we, we have someone that covers that within the network. And it's so beautiful to me, hmm. the hmm. community that we've been able to cultivate there because every conversation that we have uh, every every project that we have our experts working on, um, they all come with this sense of curiosity of I want to know the other person's discipline and and I I have ownership over my own expertise, but I know that this is not the only expertise out there, and I want to yeah. learn. I want I really want to learn how my expertise works with another's, and that for me I think is probably the coolest part of working in AI ethics is ethics is this beautiful field. I mean it's it's thousands upon millennial millennium years old yes but it's how it's in context how it works with all of these other disciplines that mm. makes it just fascinating mm. you're, you're you're bringing in these these frameworks and these theories and matching them together and, and seeing the patterns and how they work and mm. where the overlaps that's the beauty that really comes out of this field for me that's absolutely beautiful, Olivia. That that absolutely rings rings true to me. Listening to you, I've been thinking as well. I, I wonder whether the emergence of this field and feels like this is going to be a, an opportunity to reinvigorate and engage people with with their work and their whole person. Let me try and explain what I mean. I, I spent many years in corporate life, kind of twenty five years in different leadership positions in, in Lloyd's Banking Group, etc. And one thing I, I discovered time and time again was people were more than the, the kind of place they were put in at the moment. You know, you'd easily think of someone as a as a data person or an IT person or a finance person. But, you know, what? one of those people likes painting. Um, another has got a, a passion for their music. Another is a very devout person of faith in their, their particular religion. And often those other other parts of people weren't expressed at work at all. They were, they were constrained into a sort of functional cog in a machine. And I think part of the enthusiasm that we've seen around things like data science and data visualization, and, and maybe with increasingly with ethics as well, is people get a chance to be more of who they fully are. You know, the data visualization lets all these um, suppressed artists uh, express not just their technical skill, but start to think about the aesthetics of what they're producing as well. And we've started to value analysts' ability to write and present and perform. Do you see that? Do you see some of this polymath nature of work coming out of what you're doing and, and it being more of a joy to people in their work? Or am I getting carried away? I think you are hitting on a fantastic opportunity that we have in the development of our technology. Hmm. I think we still have a good chunk of the way to go in terms of actually uh, reaping the benefits, so to speak, in our work life. Mm -hmm. um, I do see a lot of people, though, wanting more purpose-filled and purpose-driven work. And so I see people leaving nice, cushy jobs because they want to work for something that they're passionate about yeah. and in teams where they can be a holistic person mm -hmm. and they can be a holistic mm -hmm. being. Um, actually, you're bringing up quite an interesting point here. 
I'm seeing again, this is this is early stages too, though, but I'm seeing a few startups here and there pop up where their focus as they are categorizing people and, and being able to uh, create recommendation systems or learning systems off of their profiles and, and understanding who people are, they're focusing not on making, let's say the data easy, so you have three categories and it's an easy data set and done. Yeah. No, they're focusing on how do we make this a holistic data set? How do we provide mm -hmm. enough categories or labeling or ways to present yourself within that data set that get as close as possible to who you are as a person? So you're mm -hmm. not just pigeonholed into, I'm a data analyst and that's it. No, you're a data analyst that loves to paint, that uh, comes from a dual nationality background and uh, you're terrible at cooking. Like that starts to, <laughs> you know, yeah. painting yes. a random picture, yes. but that's a whole person. And the startups that I've worked with a couple of these startups that are really taking the time and focusing and, and they use that wording. They go, how do we, how do we make this a holistic data set? How do we have this representative of people, not of data, but of people, because it's the people behind the, those data points that really matter. And so I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity that we're going towards, as long as we respect the fact that there are all of these categories and mm -hmm. there will always be someone that sits in between those categories. Mm -hmm. We can never fully classify everyone. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I also have a dual nationality. If you want me to fill out which my nationality is, I am a person that sits in between a category and I always will. And mm -hmm. that's, that's okay. Um, we're being able to represent that better in our data sets, but we'll never quite get it as perfect as it is in in the physical world, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. And that's a fascinating example to share. I was very struck by thinking about GDPR and its data minimization principle. This is kind of a, a counterpoint of almost the more ethical thing to do might be more data in order to more fully represent the whole person just seems seems to come from a different value perspective than the functional you should have the bare minimum of data necessary to functionally do the job that you can kind of justify it's just, yeah. just struck me as interesting and it's not even having the bare minimum or the maximum amount of data it's it's more how you're conceptualizing how is that data labeled and what are the categories that you're placing it within mm -hmm. um you know a a, a cat or a lion, it can be classified as a cat or let's say a, a, a predator. You know, there, there's different ways to classify the same yeah. thing and just looking at it beyond just our typical assumptions of this is either a cat or not a cat. So no, okay, it could be a cat, it can be a predator, it can be all these different different labels for, for a lion mm -hmm. um, in a way that better represents it in that context. So. Yeah. There's a lot that there's a lot that we can do. It's not it's not black and white. We haven't reached our full potential there. Um, yeah. So hey, 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 I've bought into to your optimism here, Paul. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> On this, I, I think yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's there. I'm mean, I'm naturally an optimistic person, but yeah, just just talking this through as well. I think it's a it's a beautiful opportunity, and yes, if we challenge ourselves, we really can reach it and, and fulfill it great great there we are a, a polymath future for more um let, let's let me take a given you have an american background partly let me uh, take a take a pivot as americans like to say um and uh, focus 
on your founding of your business then? Because I know the career trajectory for many people who have data and data science and, and AI tech skills may be at some stage to, to found their own business. It's an aspiration for many. I was struck by the way yours came about. You, you seem to start with this free discussion club and getting the conversation going between multiple people. And almost organically, it sounded like your business emerged out of that. Whereas I'm aware the kind of textbook is much more, you know, you kind of clarify your killer commercial app and you, you, you build your business certain how you're going to make money right from the start. Um, would you recommend your approach to people as an alternative to such a commercially focused way to start a business? I would. I think, I, and I am biased, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why your voice is valuable. Yeah, I'll start with that. I, I'm very biased in this instance. I, so when people ask me, what kind of entrepreneur, what is entrepreneurship to you? Yeah, yeah. A lot of times people are surprised to hear that I didn't grow up trying to sell lemonade on the corner. I did do some lemonade <laughs> stands. They were terrible. I, did, I was not good at making lemonade. But <laughs> like, yeah. usually you hear entrepreneurs' stories are, I made bracelets and I sold them. And then I had this trade deal and I, I sold lunch, my lunch to other kids at, at school and everything. And it's all about the sales. It's all about uh, the, the, the profit that I was turning and yeah. being able to find those, those business models when I was really young. And yes, that is an important part of entrepreneurship, being able to find and develop a business model out of what, what can seem like chaos or, or just blank space, blank space. Yeah. Um, but for me, entrepreneurship is more, can I create an idea that is inspiring enough to get other people to follow and, and lead mm -hmm. through that idea? Mm -hmm. Mm. And that's more the approach that it, that ethical intelligence came out of. I, I had the idea of bringing together philosophers and programmers together. Yeah. And through that, I, I mean, I, I had the idea and, and um, one of my friends at the time, she was doing her master's in, in and so we, we came together and, and originally started that, that discussion group. Um, and then through that, it was this, journey of, okay, this is something that people are interested in. And okay, I now have interests beyond just students wanting to join the discussion group and actually commercial interest of what kind of reports can we do? Can we treat this like a think tank? And so that clued me into, well, maybe there's actually a business here. Hmm. But for me, the important part, even over these last three years, we've been through different business models. We've been through pivots where we're in the middle of a pivot right now. Hey. Uh, the part that's been steadfast has not been, how do I turn a profit? How do I, what kind of business model can I have here? My, the steadfast core has been, what is my mission and what mm. am I trying mm. to accomplish and how do I do that? It, the how comes is the second where the why is really the driver. And I think if you have the why, it carries you so much more through mm -hmm. the trials mm -hmm. of being a founder because it's a roller coaster. And if I was just in it for the how, I don't think I would be here talking to you. I can yeah. tell you for a fact, I wouldn't be here talking to you, but because I've had such a strong why, I have weathered a pandemic with a company. I have weathered um, team members leaving. I have weathered pivots. I have weathered pitfalls, but all because I, I haven't, I haven't been able to give up on that. Why? Yeah, that is that is great, Olivia. 
we'll link back to that purpose-driven, mission-driven, values-driven kind of organization. I, you should be quoted in the next Simon Sinek book. You're, you're clearly a, a real why, why starter. I appreciate the, it. Good. You, 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 you're a very fascinating person to talk to on this. Um, I, I do come to the end of our time probably. So let me let me close with one question because I, I like to keep the the podcast conversations focused on not just introducing our listeners to a broad diversity of leaders in the data analytics space. And I think your diversity is one of the wonders of all the people working in this area. Um, but also to remind people that people aren't finished articles. We're all still working on kind of developing as leaders. You're, you're clearly a fast learner, Olivia, and you've, you've picked up all sorts of different disciplines as you've gone about your career. But sh we shouldn't estimate all those challenges you've kind of referenced there that you faced running your startup. Leading a business brings a whole new range of challenges and development needs. How are you still investing in your development as a leader today? Oh, <laughs> so I actually just started, uh, so speaking quite logistically now, I, I just started with a business coach this last month okay. and that was a big step for me. And it really mm. was focused on, um, like I mentioned, uh, ethical intelligence, we're going through a fairly large pivot right now. And I, and I'm going to be stepping into a new role in the company. I'm still founder and CEO, but that role is changing. Um, right. I'm no longer going to be as hands-on with clients. I'm actually, <laughs> the team is expanding. And so I can no longer be in, in as many details as I, as I have been. Absolutely. And I know that's, that's going to be a hard transition for me mm -hmm. because I, I love those details, mm -hmm. but I need to be a stronger leader. One that has a, a strong, again, have, have strong vision, but can communicate that vision as well. Um, so I started with the business coach because I looked at that and went, this is going to be a big transition for me and I want to be able to meet it. And so um, one of the things I'm doing right now is looking at different management styles to try and figure out what is my management style okay, okay. and then understand from that, um, understand from that, okay, this is my management style. How does this work with different people and their styles of being managed? How can I communicate to people that I am managing that this is how, um, this is how I will be able to best support them, yeah. uh, but also how to best lead them. And, and it's a journey. It's definitely, mm -hmm. I think uh, as a leader, one of the things I find hardest is actually being vulnerable and showing when I have um, mm -hmm. weak points. And so this is requiring me to really look at those weak points and examine yeah. them with other people. Um, so it's terrifying, but it's, it's also very, rewarding because I'm able to better understand um, what situations to put myself into where I'm going to be the best support possible instead of just throwing myself into every single one where where do my skill sets shine and then how do I help others shine in their own skill set but also live up to the potential that I, I get so enamored with when I first meet people and, and I want them to to fulfill yeah, absolutely. That sounds a great approach that you're taking, Olivia. I mean, um, as, as a mentor and coach myself, I would say that, but uh, so much of whether those succeed uh, are defined actually by the client, not by the mentor or coach. And I think your clarity and willingness to work on those areas will, will help you. I'm sure it's going to be hugely successful for you. I hope so, Paul. Uh, 
so do I. But that's been brilliant. Th thank you for your thoughts and many thanks for your time today, Olivia. As I expected, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much, Paul. And thank you for these questions. They were I, I just fascinating. They were really actually quite fun for me, for my, for me to think through and, and pointed at a few things that sit in the back of my mind, but I don't mm. often get the chance to speak on. Great. Glad to hear it. We like to bring something else to the community in terms of voice and I guess the things that interest me. <laughs> Thank you everybody also for listening. I hope you found uh, what Olivia shared today helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up and each week there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader.com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, it just reminds me to say thank you again to everyone for your time. Have a great week. But perhaps you can reflect this week on what ethics might mean in your organization or the dimension we chatted about bringing together in conversation those people from different disciplines. How could, how could that be helping? Anyway, I'll leave you to muse on that one. Bye for now, listeners. <laughs>